Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? The summer 2020 ADHD Essentials online parent coaching groups are full to overflowing, and registration is closed. If you missed getting in this time around, they'll be launching again in the fall, so just be patient. And of course, as usual, a big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He did the heavy lifting on this episode, and I greatly appreciate his support. And if you enjoy this show, don't forget to listen to our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired and Hacking Your ADHD. In ADHD Rewired, Eric Tivers shares amazing interviews with ADHD experts and ADHD adults on a weekly basis. And in Hacking Your ADHD, Will Kerb shares weekly tips to help us more effectively manage our ADHD so that we can better do the things that we want to do. And of course, if you find value in this episode or you found value in a previous episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Chandler Creedon. Chandler is a retired school psychologist, a former professor of mine, and a returning guest. In today's episode, Chandler and I talk about teaching our kids at home, using uniforms to set roles, creating versus consuming, and being emotional scientists. All right, let's get rolling. I'm Chandler Creedon. I have been a school psychologist for the last... Oh, I don't know, 30 some odd, 38 years. Uh, I retired after being a school psychologist for most of that in a uh, town of Franklin, Mass. I'm now doing some consulting to a couple of school systems, but I'm also doing some consulting to the Federation for Children with Special Needs, helping advocates understand psychological testing and those kinds of things. And I want to just stay involved because sort of, this is sort of my lifeblood. This is what gets me up in the morning to keep going. And I can tell because you were my professor, as long-time listeners will know, because you were on, I don't know, 100 episodes ago or something. And as soon as COVID-19 hit, I don't know, inside of two or three weeks, I had contacted you and also Gail Okerman, who is another former professor of mine. And the two of you actually taught together because I wanted to have you on the show and kind of get your perspectives on this unique situation that we find ourselves in and the important things for parents to know to help them navigate. COVID-19 and virtual learning and even summer camps, which are going to come up around the corner any moment now. And prior to launching the, ep- the episode, prior to recording, we spoke briefly about the idea of helping parents become just more aware of emotions. And I'd love to start there. What, what are your thoughts with regard to that? There's a whole bunch of places to start. And, and one of the things that I've, I've been thinking about as you, as you were just saying that is this whole covid 19 virus thing has just shaken everybody to the core because I think in the past we've sort of been navigating on automatic pilot as far as, uh, you know, things we knew 
things that had been we've experienced. And so based on that experience, we figured we could just follow up and do those kinds of things. And then all of a sudden this, this virus hit and it just shook us to the core because all of a sudden we're negotiating by the stars again. And all, a lot of this automatic stuff that we've been doing isn't working. And one of the things that, that I began to see quickly was the whole thing of emotions that we didn't, we haven't really delved deeply in, into the whole field of emotions. Because if you say to most people, even with the COVID thing, how are you doing? You know, they would say, fine, I'm hanging in there, as opposed to I'm scared, I'm angry, I'm uh, lost, I don't know where to go. You know, I have to do my own work. Plus now I'm having to teach my kids or I'm having to supervise my kids learning because they're doing uh, online learning. And, and it just tossed, it was, it was like a big tossed salad or something. All these emotions got tossed into this bowl and nobody knew where to go with it. Nobody knew what to do with it. And I think parents were, were helping their kids, helping their students in with all the greatest intentions in the world. But I think one of the things that happened with that is it began to blur boundaries. You know, they were no longer just the parent. They were the parent and the teacher. And, and as a result of that, it was like parents are getting angry because the kids are reacting to their schoolwork. Parents were expecting them to react to them as parents, but, but the child's reacting to the schoolwork and reacting to them as teachers. Then they got offended by the, the, the interaction that, that the kids were doing. And, and it's like all blew up because, again, nobody knew where to go with that. Yeah. I mean, there's one of the things that I had spoken to, to, to somebody about was how about if we separate that? Is that when, when you're sitting down to, to help your child with their schoolwork, come dressed as a professor. Okay, come, come, dressed, come dressed in your academic gown or something to separate the fact that, you know, for the next hour, I'm going to be your teacher as opposed to I'm going to be your parent. And let's see if we can create some boundaries here. Because again, it's just, it's, it's new work. We haven't really thought about that. How do you, you know, we'd send a kid out to school in the morning, get him on a school bus. And it's like, whew, now I can, now I can do my stuff as an adult. I don't have to worry about that. But with this act, with this uh, pandemic, you know, all these roles have been mixed up and, and people are not sure where to go with it or what to do with it. Yeah. And I know for me, one of the wrinkles that's affecting my emotions is the sheer number of transitions I have to make every day between doing the adult work, right? This podcast, my clients, launching coaching groups. I've got people who want me to do some trainings for them. And, and the emailing that goes into all of that, right? All that backend stuff. Right. And then my kids need me. Absolutely. So my kids need lunch. My kids need breakfast and dinner. My kids need help getting started. And not just in the morning, but I'm finding that they need help getting started on schoolwork sometimes. They need help doing something other than sitting on the couch because we keep getting rain and it keeps, every time they start to establish a habit of going outside, then it rains for a day or two and that dies. So they need me sometimes just to get them out of the house. And I can do that in a mean way and be like, get out of the house rah, 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 and get myself all emotionally keyed up. Or I can sort of do it more gently and guide them outside. But either way, I'm still transitioning from emailing or meeting with a client to noticing that my kids need some help getting started on the next activity or task 
and then getting them to do that and then transitioning back. And that for me is probably the most challenging emotional component of all of this. That's a huge thing. And I, I don't know where I just read this because I'm being home. I'm doing a lot of reading. <laughs> I don't know if it was in the, in this, in a book by, you know, Mark Brackett is permission to, uh, to feel, or if it was in uh, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, and I think it was in her book, Untamed, where she spoke about parenting, something about living, living with the gift of boredom. And, and I, I read that, it, and it really struck me, because one of the things that I think parents struggle with is this whole concept of boredom. It's like, if my kid's just sitting on the couch, either playing you know, with, a, with a, a gaming device, or they're on their phone, or, or something like that, I don't want them to be bored. Speaking of boredom, my kids actually said this to me this morning. Uh, Nate came up to me, and Gavin was standing there with him, and he said, Dad, I know that COVID-19 has gotten boring because yesterday, Gavin and I used our socks as action figures. <laughs> <laughs> but, I th- but I think that's wonderful because it shows them that, that there's more to do. And it, when I hear parents talk about being, you know, their kids being bored, I, I go back to, I was the oldest of, of eight kids. And one of the things growing up, the thing that I learned very quickly was you could never say to my mom, I'm bored. Because if, if you ever said to my mom that I'm bored, because God, she was never bored with eight of us. If you ever said to her, I'm bored, she would go into the closet and take out this box. And inside this box were all of the socks that got lost in the washing machine. You know how you throw pairs of socks in? and Somehow they only come out ones and the machine, I don't know, whatever that does to them. Does to them. So she would, she would bring this box of socks out and she would say, you can't do anything until you have 10 pairs of socks matched. Nice. Now you can th- realize with, with eight kids, oh, yeah. how many socks might have been in this box and you had to match it. So I quickly learned that you were, you were never bored. <laughs> you would find something to do really quickly. My mother was a kindergarten teacher, so I think that was part of her genius was that she learned quickly how to, how to work with kids. And it's like, if you, if you teach those kinds of skills, you can, you can make a lot happen. And so when, when I hear parents say, or I hear a kid say that they're bored, it's like, well, what are your options? You know, what else could you do? And then maybe giving people, you know, if they can't come up with a solution, come, uh, coming up with, uh, here's a task, match 10 pairs of socks or, you know, something. And it, and it, and it's funny and people my my daughter jokes with me all the time because if she's at my house and I'm doing my laundry and I'm throwing socks in the washing machine they're all pinned together and she says well why would you pin them together and I said cuz I will never spend another half a second trying to find a match to a sock <laughs> That's awesome. So it's like what are the skills we need to do? How do we help kids? How do we set boundaries? You know and I think I think kids get bored because we've, we've taken away a lot of their creativity. You know, 20 years ago, we'd say to the kids, you know, after school, change out of your school clothes, go play until the streetlights come on. And you had to figure out how to play with the kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. And that's tricky now because 
they can't play with the kids in the neighborhood, right? Like now we're, we're distancing. And so my kids are lucky. There's two of them, right? And they're the same age. So they have similar interests, similar ability levels. Like, I mean, they're identical twins. So I'm, I'm lucky in that end, but, but it, it is challenging for kids to know what to do with themselves right now. Oh, absolutely. And I think, and I, and that's why I say, I think this, this COVID virus has just come in and emphasized for us all the crazy stuff that we had come to accept as automatic behavior prior to it arriving Yeah, and setting up soccer teams for kids, the setting up baseball teams for kids, as opposed to saying to the kids, here's a baseball, here's a bat, go get the kids in the neighborhood to play and, and learning how to negotiate their way through those kinds of things. Yeah. One of the things that this has got me coming back to, it's a concept that, uh, was guiding me for a little while. And then I sort of lost track of it. Like you do with some stuff. And for a little while there, I was really mindful of the amount of time I spent creating versus the amount of time I spent consuming. And sometimes you're consuming in order to create. And that's a gray area. That's something I've been talking to my kids about is what's your creation to consumption ratio, right? Like how much time are you spending just sitting on your butt watching a YouTube channel and how much time are you spending drawing pictures or telling a story or building with Legos or whatever the case may be? And it's helped. It's helped them get off the couch a little more often. I'm not going to pretend that my kids are doing any better than anybody else's kids necessarily. I mean, hopefully they are. But giving them a new lens has been useful. I think that's a fabulous ratio. Creativity over consumption. I mean, I, I, when you said that, I, I, I mean, I, I just had to write that down because I think that's an amazing ratio to look at kids and to say to you know to say to the, say to your child, you know how how much are you consuming and how much are you creating? Uh, I've said to I've said to parents when I've done an evaluation of a child, you know how much reading do you do, and have kids say you know very little. And then, say, and then ask them, how much time are you spending on your, your device? And, you know, hear them say like 80% of my time. And it's like, well, how about if we come up with another ratio where you read for a half hour and you get a half hour on your device? But I think, I think that's a genius creation. Thank you. And reading is both, right? Because reading is you're consuming what's being written. But you're imagining the scene, you're feeling the emotions, and there's nothing there to give you those emotions outside of the words. Oh, absolutely. As opposed to watching a movie where the video images are provided for you and the music tells you how to feel, and there's much less imaginative creation happening when we watch a movie or something. And I think that just goes back to the fact that, that right now, especially with this, this virus thing, where everything has been, been just sort of you know, thrown up and, and exploding all around us, that we don't know where to go with things. We don't know how to separate out all of the different things that we had just taken as automatic. And that's why, you know, I think sometimes we have to do some crazy things and act things out and set some boundaries. And where we talked before about, you know, during the time that you're teaching, you know, maybe when you're teaching your two sons during that hour that you're doing that, you put a tie on. Right. Uh, I had somebody take like an old uh, denim shirt and, and on the back of it, write teacher <laughs> and over the pocket, write teacher. So that when they sat down with it, their children to, to do their homework, just for that time, they were playing the teacher role to help establish that. And that's a brilliant idea, right? I do that all the time, not, not with the teacher role. And it's something I need to activate on. But 
when I go to the dojo virtually, I wear my gi. When the boys and I exercise in the morning, I wear my gi if we're doing anything related to Kempo. I don't have to. I could be doing shorts or sweatpants or something, but I put the gi on if we're going to practice Kempo in the morning. Even when I do this podcast and when I meet with my clients, I wear at least a button-up shirt with a collar at bare minimum, unless it's cold, and that's usually a sweater. But if it's cold, I'm not putting on a hooded sweatshirt. I'm wearing a sweater. I'm wearing something that's warm but still feels more professional because the uniform matters. And putting on a teacher denim shirt is not just going to help the kid. It's going to help the parent too because they're going to get into that mind space of I'm teaching right now, so I should behave slightly differently. It sets roles. You know, if, if you see if you see somebody with a uh, a Roman collar on, you know that they're religious. And I think back to even like the when my daughter was watching the Harry Potter movies and stuff, and when the professors would go in to teach, they would teach in their academic gown to create those roles. I think we've at some point we had become so comfortable in our automatic behavior that that has has added to our not being able to define our roles in our space. And and that's going to be a big thing. I, I was I was thinking the other day they were talking about where a school's going to go in September and how a school's going to be different in September. And I think this is a great time for us to really rethink all that and to and to come up with other ways of 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 looking at what school means other than what we've done for the last I don't know two hundred years or whatever. And I've been having that experience with my kids, right? Because being a licensed teacher and having kids who have some school anxiety, especially when school comes home, which is all it is right now, I got permission to take over their English and history curriculum so that it's not coming from school, it's coming from me, and that lets them access that a little more easily. There's less anxiety around it. And it also lets me do a better job. And this is not in any way a slight on schools, but schools were forced to pivot on a dime and figure out curriculum in a heartbeat and it, at the moment, I'm just better positioned to instruct this stuff because of my background in education. But one of the things that I have to do because of my limited time with my kids, because I have clients to talk to and coaching groups to fill and all that stuff, is I've had to do more project-based learning with them where I'm giving them something to research and then they're presenting a product on that, whether it's a timeline on index cards or it's a slideshow about the battles of the revolution. I'm giving them this task to research. And we had a little bit of conflict with the battles of the revolution because they hadn't been taught that yet. Mm-hmm. And they felt like I was assessing their knowledge through this project because I hadn't communicated clearly enough to them that no, the project is the method by which you are learning about these battles. It's not going to be the only method, but it's one of them. So you're not getting graded. I'm not judging you on your output. Your output is a way for me to see that you did some research into these battles. You learned some stuff. And it's also a way for me to see how effectively you're executing on research skills. Because the things that I'm focusing on mostly with these projects, the battles of the revolution are kind of the least of my worries. What I'm much more concerned about is that they're using effective sources and that they're beginning to learn how to cite them. So that's what I'm looking at most. But the stress and anxiety that they had around feeling like they were being assessed through this project when they weren't was an interesting and very eye-opening experience for me. What you're talking about is really interesting because there's a gentleman out of, I don't know if he's out of Salem or somewhere on the North Shore, 
His name is Alan November. He runs a thing called November Learning. And he used to be a, a libra school librarian. And he's now created this whole thing on digital learning. And he every year, he, every year in the past, he's had this big conference in August where he's brought people in from all over the country to talk about digital learning. And one, I went to it one year. And one of the things that, that I took away from that was we have to change the way we, we teach subjects. Because he said, you can go on a computer and get the answer to anything. But it's how do you learn the process? How do you learn, uh, how do you, how do you learn it from different perspectives? And now, I took, I took that summer program probably, oh boy, 10 years ago. And one of the things that jumps out at me was, he said, if you were looking at, I think it was, I think he called it the Iran-Contra, where Iran took over the U.S. Embassy and held the embassy hostage for, I forget how many hundreds of days. He said, if you look that up from Google's perspective from the United States, you would get all this information. He said, what if you looked up that from the Iranian perspective? And, and I looked at, you know, I looked at the people around me and I said, well, how do you do that? Come to find out in something that, again, I didn't know. Every country has their own uh, country code. So if you, so, and so like, if you look up something uh, from in the United States from you know, on Google, it's all from the United States perspective. You have to know the, the country code from England or France or wherever to get their perspective. And, and I mean, to me, that it was like genius. Even framing that around what I'm doing with my kids, right? Where we're studying the American revolution, the American revolution for America is the founding moments of our country. From the British perspective, it's like a blip in their history. It's like, it can't be that important to Britain. It can't be. Right. And, and they just saw it. They saw us as being these radicals who want to turn against the king or the queen or whoever was on, in reigning then. But, but I think what the point that you, you touched upon that I think is just so important is that in education, Teachers have always, and I shouldn't speak for all teachers, but I think teachers have always felt that if I'm teaching a math class, I have to show my students that I know my stuff. Or if I'm teaching a history class, I have to know my stuff as opposed to this is a journey we're on. We, this is what we're, what we're looking to do. And uh, I mean, to, to, to a great degree, I think that's something that gets lost. Uh, and again, I have to go back to, to, to my mom way back when I was a little kid. And, you know, I, I was being brought up in an Irish Catholic family and we go to CCD. And back then you had to learn the catechism, but you had to learn it rote. You know, so somebody would say, who is God? And there was a certain prescribed answer you had to come back with. I had a horrible memory. And so I could never memorize all of the words that they had, but I could explain to you the answer. So I would go to the CCD class and come home devastated because I would get a low grade because I couldn't come up with all the right words, but I could come up with the concept. And, 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 and my mom said to me, it doesn't matter that you don't know all the right words, you know the concept, which is more important. And I think I've taken that in my experience, um, in all the different educational experiences I've had, to not look, not look so much at the content and how much you know of the content, 
but do you know the process? Yeah. And that's important for parents to think about when it comes to wherever school ends up going. My guess is that next year, at least some piece of it is going to be virtual and parents are going to have to take a little bit more of a hand in their kid's education because some of it's going to be virtual and they're going to be at home. And parents might feel even more that resistance to trying to teach their kids because they're not the expert because they're not even supposed to be the expert. That's the teacher's job. And I can't teach you math because I don't know trigonometry, right? But what parents can do is model effective learning practices, model critical thinking, model research and where to go to find this knowledge. Khan Academy is a good resource for a lot of stuff. They can model that Wikipedia is better than it used to be. It's still not the end all be all, but it's a, it's a place to start at least. Google is not a resource. Um, parents can model how to, how to identify responsible resources. What's good, what's not. Just asking questions. The other day I was watching uh, something on PBS. Somebody had done a documentary on water. And as I was watching that, I was thinking, oh my God, wouldn't that be a fabulous to bring the, that content into a, like an eighth grade science class and say, we're going to spend the year looking at water and this whole concept of water, but then bring in all the scientific stuff that you're supposed to look at as far as what the curriculum looks at. But just by asking questions, what I took away from that class was how important water is and we take it for granted. You know, we open up a tap and fill a, a, a glass of water or we, you know, we spend a hundred gallons washing our dog or something and we don't think about how important that water really is until all of a sudden there is no water. And by asking questions, you know, as opposed to having kids know all, all the scientific stuff, I, I become so important. But again, that gets back to what's important. The, the process is important. The, the boundaries are important. I'm asking you these questions because these questions mean as much to me as I'm on this journey with you as it does to you because you're on the journey also, as opposed to I'm the, I'm the expert here and I'm supposed to know everything. And related to that, Gavin said to me, I don't know, three weeks ago maybe, every now and then he goes on these rants and he was just like, I don't know why I even have to learn about the American Revolution. I don't get why I have to learn about anything. I should be learning how to find stuff on the internet. Mm -hmm. How come I'm not learning how to do that and instead I have to learn all these facts and dates about the American Revolution that I'm not going to remember anyway? And I'm just going to look them up again later. And on the one hand, he's not wrong, right? Because we don't need rote memorization of the catechism anymore. We can Google it. Right. But what we do need is an understanding of the causes of the American Revolution and the social forces that played out during that time because history is instructive of our current time. It's predictive of the future because these patterns repeat. And so what I said to him was that essentially. And also, I agree. I'm not going to ask you to memorize the dates of the battles. We'll use them to put the battles in order so we can sequence things and see what, what was happening when. And, and we'll use them also to compare what's happening in other parts of the world. That's why the dates matter. But you don't need to memorize them. You're right. But I am going to teach you how to do research, just like his teachers probably were too, I'm sure. But that skill element and that larger understanding of concepts element is really important. And 
schools are finally coming out of the rote memorization world. Not that there's anything wrong with memorizing stuff. I'm probably going to make my kids memorize a poem or two at some point. But that's for the practice of it, the skill of memorization, not a way to take in knowledge. Or, or because something becomes important to you. You want to, you want to memorize it. That, 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 that's important. But again, I think that goes back to a process. As I'm saying that, I'm laughing because I was a horrible speller in elementary school. And I, and I just told you I didn't, I didn't have a very good memory. Except one day somebody said, somebody said to me, how do you spell geography? And I said, I have no idea. And they said, so you use George Eaton's old grandfather wrote a pig home yesterday. If you take the, the first letter from each of those words, it spells geography. <laughs> okay, I've memorized that. I'm 70 years old. I still, if somebody says to me how to spell geography, I still have that in my memory. I might not be able to tell you the dates of the American Revolution, but being able to spell geography was important to me and I still remember it. So, that, so memory depends on what's important and what's not important. But the process is what we need to look at. How do you get from here to there? What would be the process you need to get from here to there? The other day, I think it was CNN had a th uh, thing on, on the virus and they did this beautiful thing. They looked at it not from a political perspective, but on a timeline. They had the timeline marked from like January through the 1st of May. And, and they were building on that timeline. And I thought, you know, what an amazing way to teach history. To you know, as opposed to to memorizing or or knowing all these names, to to have kids understand that this is a process based on a timeline, and if we if we can go back and look at the timeline, what can we learn from that? Does history repeat itself? You know, do these concepts keep coming up in every time frame? That brings me back to a point that we started with something that we talked about before we started recording and also something we talked about at the very beginning of this recorded part of the conversation where you mentioned prior to recording that something we want to start working on is becoming emotional scientists as opposed to emotional judges, really trying to figure out what's going on with the emotions, where are they coming from? What's that all about? And what I'm connecting that to is our earlier conversation about the kid sits down to do schoolwork and the anxiety spikes, right? And they start over-responding to what's happening and, and they battle with mom and dad, treating mom and dad like the teacher. One of the things I've been thinking about as the emotional scientist that I am, literally my job, is that one of the biggest reasons why kids are struggling to do their schoolwork is not necessarily resistance to school or an inability or not liking the teachers, or not in liking virtual learning, I think a big piece of that emotional spike is every time a kid sits down in front of a laptop or an iPad or whatever it is to do their schoolwork, they're reminded that they're not at school, and they're not with their friends, and everything is different and strange and uncertain. And I think that some of that existential dread for lack of a better term is flaring their emotions and we have to get through that before we can effectively access the academic brain <laughs> well you're right on target and, and you know the emotional experience that we've had around school whether it's not being with our friends whether it's dealing with a subject that we have difficulty with whether it's the fact that we had difficulty in school 
in some of the courses that I teach at, at the graduate level, one of the one of the things I ask students to do is to stand by the door of a school and watch parents enter. And what's fascinating to that, especially like if you're there on a parents' night, is to stand at that front door and just watch parents enter. And parents who had difficulty in school, as they open that door and they get the school smell, whatever that is, I don't know what that is, but you get the school smell as you open the door. If a parent has had trouble in school, it brings them right back to that point. So here they're going in to, to, to hear about their child and how their child's progress is, but they've just been brought back to the point in their own life of school being really difficult because of the school smell and the emotion. How, how do we separate that? And that's where we have to go. And, and the, you know, the term between an emotional scientist and emotional judge, again, came from this, this gentleman, Mark Brackett from Yale we have to get away from the judging to understand what this is. You know, so if I'm opening the door and I get the school smell and I'm brought back to my fourth grade experience of not knowing my, my multiplication facts, and I must be a bad person because I don't know my multiplication facts, I'm going to have trouble hearing whatever goes on that night. But if I understand that this is, I go back to understand why I'm feeling this and not judge it, I'm going to be in a better place. Oh, so that's interesting because you're doing, you're kind of flipping things around on me a little bit. I was thinking of the emotional scientist as the parent observing the kid. You're making it internal. You're saying like the parent should be doing some scientist work on their own emotions instead of judging them. And we should be teaching our kids the same. Absolutely. I mean, think about that. You know, so, so all of a sudden, because of this virus thing, as a parent, you have to teach your kid or, or supervise your kid learning. But at some point, you might have struggled with learning. So now you're struggling with your own stuff on top of the fact that your damn kid's having trouble with his math facts. And where am I going to go with that? So now it explodes in front of you. Right. And nobody wants to do anything. And related to that now, right, is when our kid is sitting in their Zoom room with their teacher as a parent, that might be causing me anxiety because I find Zooming to my work frustrating or anxiety-inducing because maybe I don't feel like I'm doing enough or maybe I feel like I'm wasting most of my time with all these stupid Zoom meetings. And here's another one for my kid that I have to go do. Yeah. Or maybe I miss people and being able to see them. And so Zoom is affecting me and that it reminds me that I'm feeling lonely. So that's another layer to add on to the interaction that we're having with our kids when they're doing school. So, so one of the things that, th that this mock bracket talks about is emotion being information, which I think is a huge concept for people to, to really understand is, is yes, I'm feeling something, but what is it that I'm feeling and what is the, what, where does it go down to or what's the basis for it? And once I, once I can understand that, I could I can then work my way through it from an from an information perspective as opposed to an emotional perspective. For me emotion you know there's a lot of a lot of value to that and it, it gets into this really swampy murky area but if I'm looking at it from an an uh, information perspective it's more clear and precise. So it's like I'm freaking out because I'm feeling incompetent being 
an adult who's trying to teach my child something that I had difficulty with? How do I get through that? Or, or what process can I use to get through that? As opposed to, I'm really scared. I understand you're scared. Now we're both scared and we're going to drop this. Or you're frustrated. I'm frustrated. Now we're going to explode at each other and the school. And now we're going to drop this. <laughs> yeah. And that becomes really important because if we do that, we're losing the relationship. And a parent needs to be a parent to their child. And if it gets to the point where all that emotion is getting in the way, something has to happen with that emotion. Maybe it's family therapy or therapy for somebody or something because a parent has to be a parent. As a, as a middle school psychologist, one of the things that I always dreaded was parents being in power struggles with their kids moving into high school because if, if you're in a power struggle with your child in high school, you've lost that relationship. And then we're into an area of uh, the influence of friends, the influence of drugs, the influence of what can I do to be more comfortable? And we've lost the relationship between parent and child, where I think that is just so essential. Especially right now, where, I mean, we're in our house with our family for all of the time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just about. That's hard on kids, especially in that middle school, high school age where they should be seeking independence, but it's much harder for them to do that now. And there are certainly kids going out for walks with their friends who are not practicing social distancing and are potentially creating a vector for bringing COVID back home when they don't need to be. Um, But also when we're home more, the results of missteps in relationships and miscues and over responses and that kind of stuff are more significant because you used to be able to have a rough morning with your kid and they would go to school and you would go to work and everyone would kind of bounce back. And by the time you, everyone got home, it blew over and it didn't matter as much. And those little missteps didn't matter. But now those little missteps, you don't get a break from each other. You see each other an hour later, or maybe you just continue to see each other for the whole day. And so the tension rises and rises. One of the things I've been talking about in the coaching groups for parents is apologize early and forgive often. Like kids should do it. Parents should do it. But parents have the power, so they got to lead. I can't agree with you strongly enough that we've got to be paying attention to the relationships above everything else. The plan matters less. One of the things I was just thinking about, aside from wearing the denim teacher shirt, it might make sense to get a hat rack and on the hat rack, put a bunch of hats and put a, a title on each hat. And, and when, when the, your child comes to you and says to you something and, and you say to your child, okay, what hat do you want me to respond to that? Do you want me to respond to that as your parent? Do you want me to respond to that as a teacher? Do you want me to respond to that as a friend? Do you want me to respond to that as the school psychologist? I know when my daughter was young, you know, she would say to me, dad, are you answering me as a dad or is your school psychology position? You know, so it might make sense to do that. Put up a hat rack and put up a whole bunch of hats and label them as to what hat do you want me to wear as I answer this? So that, you know, you know, the child knows where you're coming from as opposed to, uh, I don't know, just being upset or angry or, or, or whatever. Yeah. And that might also give you a minute to pause and be less upset and angry because you're thinking about a hat instead of thinking about how you're feeling and you're processing that emotions a little more effectively. Right. Just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? 
there's so much here. I this is I, I love doing this kind of thing because there's so much to think about. There's so much to try to gather. Check with people who you can help process this material with. Hang in there. Think about process. Take a deep breath. We're all going to get through this. Let's do this again sometime. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.